This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, growing concerns in Papua New Guinea as the government looks to regulate the media industry. I think this particular policy, and because it relates to the media and it relates to freedom of speech, that must be done properly. As Fiji's government looks to review nightclub hours, the business community is backing calls for earlier closing hours. They will enter the nightclub early and they will know that by 2am it closes, so they leave early. So it's not, it's not a matter of losing any amount of money or even jobs. And the ABC travels into PNG's highlands where high-powered weapons are changing the face of tribal conflict. My husband was working as deputy district administrator when they killed him. Now we are suffering because our only source of survival, our father, is gone. We'll have more on those stories coming up. I'm Evan Wasuka. But first, across the Pacific, research shows very few cases of gender-based violence actually make it to court. But even when they do, the battle isn't over. Data gathered over the past 20 years shows the bias shows that bias impacts the final outcome in 50% of court cases surrounding violence against women in the region. As Marion Farr reports, advocates are using these findings to call for change. For women who are victims of violence, the battle for justice is long and hard won. Most cases don't make it to court, but even when they do, a fair outcome isn't guaranteed. We're able to quantify the impact of bias and discrimination by comparing sentencing outcomes. Erin Thomas is director of the International Centre for Advocates Against Discrimination, or ICAD as it's known. The organisation recently analysed 20 years' worth of legal cases from across the Pacific. They found that in half of the gender-based violence cases, bias was present in the judge's final decision. The report refers to these as contentious factors. Gender stereotypes, customary factors, rape myths, things like that, they were raised in nearly 80% of cases with a quantifiable impact on sentencing in over 50%. Erin Thomas says these factors were used to reduce a perpetrator's sentence, basically to lessen the amount of time they spend in jail. In sentencing decisions, a judge will lay out the facts of the case and then they'll talk through a starting sentence based on precedent and then work through aggravating and mitigating factors. In one example, a man in Papua New Guinea was found guilty of repeatedly raping his niece. The starting sentence was six years in prison, but the judge reduced the sentence, saying the victim never protested. He lowered it even further because the offender acted alone, didn't use weapons or force and didn't pass on a sexually transmitted illness to the victim or make her pregnant. The man was also classed as a first-time offender, even though he'd been convicted with a similar offence 19 years earlier. In the end, he received a four-year sentence that was fully suspended, meaning he didn't have to spend any time in jail. Erin Thomas says while mitigating factors are important in sentencing decisions, the issues raised in cases like these are problematic and unfair. It begs the question of how we can continue to tell women and girls 
that this is a justice system for them to continue to report to and sort of seek justice through for seeing such variable outcomes. In other cases, perpetrators were given reduced sentences because they were the sole breadwinner of the family. And Erin Thomas says there were other biases too. Cases in which the perpetrator was an athlete or had career prospects that meant that they, according to the judge, deserved a reduction in their sentence. It's an issue that Nalini Singh is familiar with. As director of the Fiji Women's Rights Movement, she advocates for victims of gender-based violence. There has been really a long-term advocacy effort from those organisations that work on this issue. There has been a lot of capacity building of the formal justice sector, including the judiciary. Ms Singh says she's seen some positive changes in the justice system, particularly around the sole breadwinner argument and consideration of a perpetrator's social status. Rightfully, we don't see that happening anymore. But she says there's still a lot more work to be done, especially when it comes to arguments around first-time offending. Her organisation analysed more than 100 rape cases that went through Fiji's High Court last year. They found that in two out of three cases, perpetrators were given a reduced sentence for being a first-time offender, even if the abuse happened multiple times. The court takes it as a first offender, whilst you know the number of times the rape would have occurred would be multiple. She says that's not fair. We are of the view that for such heinous gendered crimes towards female victims, we need to have much stricter safeguards by the formal justice system. That sends a strong message to the community to stop doing that. But defining bias can be tricky, particularly when cultural factors come into play. I asked ICAD director Erin Thomas how her team went about taking important customs and cultural beliefs into account when analysing the court cases. That's a great question. And, you know, in, in the Pacific and around the world, Western systems of law often don't gel very well with customary legal traditions, which is why we describe it as a contentious factor and a starting point for a discussion um, and how we might better promote access to justice for victim survivors of gender-based violence. And bias in the justice system isn't just a problem in the Pacific. Certainly this is an issue around the world. But Erin Thomas believes that big changes can happen in the region and Fiji is a leading example. So judicial reform can happen like that. You know, when things are passed down from leadership and change can happen quite quickly in terms of how cases are adjudicated, which is a really powerful step and hopefully something that we will see across other jurisdictions. There's still a long way to go, but she's hopeful. That's Marion Farr reporting. Across the Pacific, farmers and communities are preparing for a drier weather with El Nino forecasted for the region. But here in Australia, the Bureau of Meteorology is predicting a super El Nino, which could see higher than expected temperatures from October. The past three years of wet weather has caused remarkable plant growth, and that means more fuel for the bushfire season. Angus Randall with this report. Stuart McConnell saw fire rip through East Gippsland during the black summer bushfires. That was more than half of our our shire was directly burnt by the 1920 fires. 
individual communities were isolated for long periods of time. Um, about 350 houses were were destroyed by the fires in East Gippsland, which is obviously a really significant impact for those those people. After three La Ninas in a row, the Bureau of Meteorology says there's now a 50% chance of an El Nino in 2023. For Australia, La Nina means more rain and lower temperatures. El Nino can lead to scorching summers and a bigger risk of bushfires. Dr Tom Mortlock is from the Climate Change Research Centre at the University of New South Wales. The dice is certainly rolled towards the likelihood of El Nino forming. So we'll have to just uh, keep watching this space, but I think it's going to become uh, increasingly clear as to whether we we go into El Nino territory over the next couple of months. But certainly my money would be on on El Nino forming over, over this summer. The Bureau of Meteorology uses seven climate models from weather bureaus around the world to make its assessments. Its own model is the most extreme. It suggests that by September there could be a super El Nino, where sea surface temperatures reach more than two degrees above average. But Dr Tom Mortlock says when it comes to an extreme El Nino, it's too early to tell. I don't think anyone really would be able to predict the strength of El Nino this far out. I mean, we have problems predicting the likelihood of an El Nino you know, forming this far out, let alone the strength. Dr Nandani Ramesh is a senior research scientist at the CSIRO. She agrees it's still unclear. So right now the Bureau of Meteorology has called for an El Nino watch, which means there's a 50% chance of an El Nino developing at all. You can't really say, is it going to be a big one, a small one? Um, We just don't know yet. It may seem surprising that such a major climate event can be so hard to predict, but small weather events can affect the chances of an El Nino forming. So you can get something we call westerly wind bursts, which are sudden bursts of wind blowing from west to east. You could get a large tropical cyclone or um, a sudden change in the currents off of South America. And all of those things, even though they're individually quite small, just one of them at this particular time of year is enough to to change the trajectory of the whole system. If the system does change to an El Nino, it risks the East Coast drying out, and that could see a horror bushfire season. One thing that's important to keep in mind is that over the last few years, we've had a lot of wet weather, and that's promoted a lot of growth of vegetation meaning that there is more fuel available for a bushfire if it were to take hold. So managing that vegetation is really important, whether or not there's going to be an El Nino. In East Gippsland, Council General Manager of Place and Community, Stuart McConnell, is preparing for a dangerous summer. Yeah, certainly there's been a lot of a lot of growth over the last couple of years, and, and one of the key issues the community highlight for us is the importance of fuel management. Climate experts should know by winter whether an El Nino is on its way. Angus Randall with that report about the potential of a super El Nino season here in Australia. In the Fale is a brand new music show on ABC Radio Australia. Hosted by me, Paolo Tukefu. I'll be spinning my favourite tunes from dancehall to disco, calypso to country, reggae to roots and hip-hop to house music from across the era to keep the kids and the aunties happy. If it has a pumping groove, I'll be bringing it to you to bump you into the weekend. In the Follet, Fridays at 2pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia.
It's that time of the morning to take a look at the headlines from across the region. And joining me this morning is Kyle Evans. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning to you, Evan. Let's head over to Fiji, where three senior politicians have been added to the list of people not allowed to leave leave the country. What's this about? Yeah, so former Prime Minister Frank Bonimarama, former Attorney General uh, Ayaz Syed Kayyum, and former Supervisor of Elections, uh, Mohamed Sanim. All names we've mentioned a lot in recent months have been added uh, to the stop, uh, sorry, have been issued with stop departure notices. So this is reported by the Fiji Sun, who uh, got a glimpse of the some 2,000 names on this list, which is listed on the Parliament website. Uh, Those three names, obviously, among the most recognisable among them. And it virtually means that if they are found trying to leave the country, they had to be stopped at once. Well, I'm surprised. 2,000 names. That's a big, uh, that's a big list there. Now, does you're, not, you're not on that list, are you, Evan? I don't think so. <laughs> does it say how long they'll be on that list for? No, not known. But uh, we do know that the three men were added to that list uh, in January. Uh, according to the Home Affairs Minister, that was based on information he received uh, pending investigations uh, c- conducted by police uh, on the trio. So I guess it's linked to the uh, criminal cases currently um the police are looking into uh, regarding those cases. Interesting. Let's keep an eye on that and see what happens. Uh, Fiji politics, certainly very uh, interesting at this point of time. Now let's go over to Papua New Guinea, where the funeral for former PNG Prime Minister Sir Rabi Namaliu uh, is, is being planned out. What's happening there? That's right. So uh, the late PM, uh, there is some fresh news on that. The late PM will be given a state funeral in Port Moresby um, on Tuesday. He'll be laid to rest on Independent Hill. So Sorry, Independence Hill. Um, that's according to The National, who quoted Foreign Affairs Minister Justin Chathanko. Uh, however, the op- official program will actually be beginning today. His casket will be in uh, Kokopo uh, uh, for two days, where people can pay their respects there. On Sunday, it will then go to... Two- it will then go to Sir John Guy's Indoor Stadium in Port Moresby for people in Port Moresby to do the same before finally heading to the Grand Hall of the National Parliament for all members to pay their final respects. Uh, we actually have a grab from former PIF Secretary, uh, Secretary uh, uh, Dame Meg Taylor. Here's what she had to say. I've known Sir Robbie for over 50 years. Um, we met as students at UPNG. My parents were very, very fond of him. And, uh, you know, in our traditions, uh, he helped, helped me to bury my father, as I did with I did with his father. And my mother just loved the interaction that she had with Itzarabi. There will be much said in the eulogies that will be given about who he was and his contribution. But I remember him as a very, very dear friend and... The loss for his family, for his sons and daughters, I think is, is going to be enormous. So that's a former Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum, Dame McTaylor, who's, who's also a former Papua New Guinea diplomat, speaking there about um, Sir Rabbi Namaliu's uh, uh, funeral. What's what's happening with the burial and who, where will he be buried and alongside uh, which other state leaders? He'll actually be buried alongside uh, former Prime Ministers uh, uh, Sir Makare Barota and Sir William Skate. Uh, however, I understand it's also going to be close to his wife's grave, which was uh, at the request uh, of the family. Well, we'll be certainly keeping a close eye on that and what's happening in Papua New Guinea. Now, heading over to Samoa, 
We know that Pat Conroy was on a visit uh, to Samoa. What have we heard from this trip uh, to Samoa? Yeah, he's come bearing gifts, uh, a further $20 million to be precise. Uh, he actually signed a new partnership agreement alongside Samoa PM Fiamme, Fiamme Naomi Mata'afe yesterday. Uh, this is reported by uh, Talamua.com, who said uh, it will be an eight-year partnership agreement focused on Samoa's economic growth. Like I said, $20 million, no short amount of money, which is, which is great news for them. Uh, and it will, it will also help uh, Samoa's continued um, recovery from COVID, as well as deliver a number of other projects. Um, some of which Pat Conroy was uh, nice enough to highlight. Uh, here's what he had to say. Um, I understand that $20 million has already been used to, uh, through Samoa's government systems, through the benefit schemes to support senior citizens and people with disabilities with the cost of living pressures that um, Samoa and Australia are experiencing right now. And so that that was great to receive that briefing and and be part of that announcement. That's Pat Conroy, the Minister for International Development and the Pacific, speaking there from Samoa, where he was uh, explaining about that $20 million in assistance going to Samoa and how it will go into budget support for other things. Kyle, uh, thank you very much for that update uh, uh, about all the news happening across the region. Thank you, Evan. And uh, coming up in the next 20 minutes, we'll be talking to Hilda Wayne. Hilda is the presenter for Sisters Let's Talk. She's also a reporter for One Talk, for the ABC's One Talk program. But most recently, she was in Papua New Guinea's Highlands area where she uh, covered a story where they were looking at the impact of automatic weapons on tribal warfare and that impact it's having on communities. So that's coming up in the next 20 minutes. And uh, stay with us right here on Pacific Beat. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Now we head to Fiji, where the nightlife might soon be turned down a notch with the government set to review the operating hours of all nightclubs in the country. The sale of alcohol will also be reviewed following an increase in violence and criminal activities around popular night spots. Dr. Ram Raju is the director of the Nandi Chamber of Commerce, and this is what he had to say about the review. Absolutely, we are in favour of the uh, review of the nightclub hours. What has the reaction been from late-night venues in Fiji? Well, obviously, they were uh, objecting to it. They were, uh, would, I mean, we, we can understand where they're coming from. It's purely because of uh, the dollar terms where they were able to do some extra business. And it's, it's uh, going to affect them to some extent, I would think, but not as uh, bad as it used to be at one stage in the past that I can remember. Do you think um, it will affect after-hour businesses and will affect jobs, uh, reduce the number of tourists? No, not at all. I don't think that's uh, at all uh, going to happen. I think, uh, if at all, it may increase business, all, all, all that the people will need to know that the uh, nightclubs uh, will close early, and how early we are not too sure yet. You know, we we would support it in the past. Prior to this extension, was one a.m. Now we feel, in fact, at one stage the chamber had supported an extension to at least two in the morning. We, you know, this would be in line with many other nightclubs operators that we have that we know exist in Australia and New Zealand and other countries. 
So we felt that would be the ideal closing time. So if people can come to realize, yes, this is a more realistic time to close, they will enter the night of early, and they will know that by 2 a.m. it closes, so they leave early. So it's not, it's not a matter of losing any amount of money or even jobs. And so police have cited a rise in crime as a result for the review. Uh, what impact has that had on the area? Yeah, there has been an increasing number of criminal activities, especially when it has extended hours to, to five in the morning. Uh, we, we are aware of several deaths that have come, come as a result of uh, brawls uh, with heavily intoxicated patrons coming out of nightclubs. And of course, uh, they become a nuisance to the people that live around, very close to this nightclub. Now, the, the ones that I know of here in Nandi are surrounded by a, a large number of residential uh, areas, you know, where, where uh, the residents like to come out early hours of the morning to go for their morning walks or jogs and exercise, or even to buy early morning bread, uh, etc. And they have been <clears throat> assaulted along the way. So... Yes, I mean, I mean, surely the criminal activities will, will, will die down. So is the potential loss of revenue from reduced operating hours a fair price to pay to stop the th- this threat of crime, as you say? Yeah, I guess so. It, it, uh, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword if we, sometimes when you look at it. But unfortunately, I think for the uh, country like ours, uh, where there is no control over drinking, and they, they, you know, people indulge in uh, heavy bouts of drinking, and they know it's available, and they continue to buy, and then uh, this is the result of uh, the drinks being uh, supplied uh, at will. And so, will the chamber be involved or have any input in the review process? If so, what will you be advocating for? Well, we have already submitted our proposals to the uh, Prime Minister well well ahead of the Cabinet meeting, I think. And the police operations are also well aware of our submissions in the past. And as I had mentioned earlier, a more realistic time for the nightclubs to close would be 2 in the morning. That's Dr. Ram Raju, Director of the Nandi Chamber of Commerce, and he was speaking there to the ABC's Jan Kohut. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Evan Wasuka. One of the major impacts of climate change on, is on agriculture in the Pacific. With the future unknown, organizations across the region are beginning to work to conserve plant genetic resources. Filippo Guzun is a gene bank curator for the Center of Pacific Crops and Trees, and he spoke with ABC's Lucy Cooper about managing the largest gene bank in the Pacific and how they've already conserved in vitro 18 crops and 2,090 varieties. The you know, climate change effects here in the Pacific are probably harder than all the other countries in the world. So, and also the impact of pest and disease on clonal crops. Uh, so what we are doing, I mean, we are uh, uh, provide like safety duplication for these varieties that might be extinct now and also repatriate to the country of origin uh, so they can get back varieties that are no longer there. And beside conservation, we are also characterizing the varieties 
for uh, resilient trade to climate change, so for drought resistance, salinity stress. So when a country needs varieties that are, I don't know, salinity resistance, we can provide these a lot of varieties uh, to the interested countries. As production systems change because of the effects of climate change, uh, for farmers and agriculture in Australia, could there be a potential future where we're planting crops that were only ever traditionally grown in the Pacific, but because of this gene bank, you now have access to them in Australia? Yeah, of course. We are distributing all around the world and actually uh, we are distributing material to Australia now mostly for research, so to researchers in universities. But of course, I mean, our material is in the framework of the International Treaty for Plant Genetic Resources. So we distribute worldwide uh, to the Caribbeans, to West Africa. So why not in the future also to Australia? Um, could we just touch on senile coconut and the work that you guys are doing with that? Because it's a massive issue here, especially in Fiji. Yeah. So, yeah, as you know, coconut, uh, most of the plants now in the Pacific are getting old, so not producing as they should. Uh, so what we are doing is conserving many of the varieties which are under threat of extinction. So uh, in, uh, improving our tissue culture uh, protocols, but also starting with uh, the long-term conservation, so cryopreservation. Uh, we are starting, we are building a cryopreservation lab uh, in our facilities in Suva, so to be able to long-term conserve serve uh, coconut varieties, but we also uh, would like to improve our uh, propagation uh, capacity uh, so we can also distribute uh, to the different countries uh, coconut varieties. In terms of these other products, tell me about coconut veneer and the, um, well really it looks like it looks like flooring. <laughs> yeah, so that's in a way connected to what I was saying before. Uh, most of the plants are getting senile, so not producing uh, as much, a lot of old plants and, you know, how we make some use out of it. Uh, so our pillar two, which is uh, forestry, um, well, they, are, they have this project on doing plywood or wood products out of uh, senile coconut and it's working well and we hope, you know, it can be an important option for the economy of Fiji and other countries as well. Moving forward, what exciting work do you guys have planned for 2023? Uh, business as usual or any new projects? No, we have uh, several new projects uh, coming, uh, so starting this cryopreservation lab, which will allow us to improve our long-term conservation strategy. Uh, also, uh, uh, do you say upgrading our seed laboratory, so to focus not only on clonal crops, uh, but also to seed, uh, seed crops in a way, so forestry species, vegetables and so on, cereals. And also we have a lot of uh, research on characterizing our varieties. So we, we've done a very good job in conserving, but now we want to know their traits. Uh, so characterizing means uh, like the phenotypic, so in the field or in the screen house, but also the genetics part. Uh, so uh, genotype all our collection and virus index all our collection. Uh, so also to establish a core collection you know, of the very unique varieties we conserve. And so also we want to do safety duplication of our varieties. So our, our accession are at the moment only in our lab or mostly in our lab. And we want to be able to duplicate to other gene banks in the world. So hopefully it never happens, but if something happens to our facilities, we can always get back the varieties from these other centers. That's Filippo Guzon. He is the gene bank curator for the Center of Pacific Crops and Trees. And he was speaking there, with, speaking there to Lucy Cooper from the ABC. 
We now go to Papua New Guinea, where tribal fighting has been blamed for horrific violence in the highlands region. While tribal fighting has long been part of traditional life, the introduction of high-powered weapons, money and politics has altered life for communities. A team from the ABC recently visited Enga province and spoke to those affected by the violence. I am from Kompiam. My daughter is with me and she is 25 years old. My husband was killed due to politics. My husband was working as deputy district administrator when they killed him. Now we are suffering because our only source of survival, our father, is gone. I am a housewife and I have no hope for the future for my kids. My daughter is supposed to do her second year nursing school but cannot because I don't have money for her school fees. Second born was accepted at Port Mosby Administration College but cannot go. My third was accepted at University of Technology but he can't go because we don't have school fees. My children and I have no place to call home. That's Booz Willie. She is a mother of eight from Compiam district of Enga, and she was speaking there to the ABC's Hilda Wayne. Now, Hilda is a producer for Radio Australia's One Talk program, and she's also a presenter for Sisters Let's Talk. And she was a producer of that team, I, I, I said, that visited Enga uh, recently. Uh, Hilda is uh, joining us this morning uh, on the line. Uh, good morning, Hilda, and uh, thank you for joining us on Pacific Beat. Good morning, Evan, and thank you so much for having me. Hilda, we just heard there, Booz Willie. Um, what was it like visiting these communities and speaking to people affected by tribal violence? Yeah, Evan, um, Bush Willie's story, unfortunately, is story. Uh, the story is shared by many uh, women who, and also families who are impacted by tribal violence. And as you've heard, she, the husband died because of um, uh, he was killed, killed, and um, um, was a, district, a deputy district administrator, and he was the sole uh, income earner for the family. And with eight kids, uh, it was really. Uh, disheartening and sad to see and he, sit and hear the stories of not only Bush really, but uh, there were several other mothers there, two of them were widows, just like Bush, and um, a young girl as well was there who left school early to marry. So it's the same story that um, we do not get to hear often because of tribal conflict, unfortunately, and um, just to get to hear the stories and um, see what they had to say. Uh, it, it was really sad to hear their stories, but then all they wanted was to, was you know, for someone at least to hear, you know, the struggles and what they are going through. Hilda, how common is tribal violence uh, in the Highlands uh, area? Tribal violence, um, I will speak for Enga, where my mom is from. Um, Engans usually, traditionally, they fought over land and women or pigs, uh, because pigs is a very high-value commodity in, in the province and people's culture. Um, so... It it was not that common, or um, tribal violence didn't didn't just happen because people just wanted to fight, but it was just over land and so forth. And this was resolved um, through mediation, and uh, it wasn't that common, or not not like a daily uh, daily or sort of 
uh, occurrence that happens uh, all the time. But I guess in um, in the mid 1990s onwards, that changed, and um, now we are seeing it's just happening everywhere, everywhere in the province and also parts of Southern Islands, and um, we hear them. This happening also in other parts of the provinces in the highlands, but mostly uh, Southern Islands, Ella and Enga, that has become really, really uh, worse over the past decade or two. Now, Hilda, as you were saying, you you are from Enga. How long had it been before you had uh, gone back um, to Enga? And because uh, you you're based here in Melbourne uh, with the rest of the Pacific team, but how long has it been before you uh, since you had been back, and what did you see that was different from the last time you were there? Yes, I think it, it's about uh, because um, of like I said of the fighting that has that has been ongoing. Uh, my mom's people were displaced, and so my grandfather had to relocate to Mount Hagen, and uh, it's a different province altogether. And for him to, you know, men to leave the land, to move, move away, that's men are proud of the land, and the, the land is their life. And for him to move away from his land and his, you know, what he's used to to, to leave away from his land was was really heartbreaking to see. And um, we have never, I've never gone back. I've actually went to school there uh, in my, during my childhood, and uh, I have very fond memories of spending my holidays there. It's beautiful. Uh, Sac Valley is it's, it's beautiful, but then, like in the mid-1990s, 95, 94, uh, fighting erupted in Sac Valley, and uh, it just changed everything, changed people's lives, and uh, people became displaced, and it has, became, uh, it has become uh, really, really worse, and I wasn't able to go back. Uh, for, you know, almost 10, 15 years, I wasn't able to go back. So when Natalie Whiting, who was part of the team and um, through the Sean Ronnie Grant, was able to, was uh, going to do this project on tribal conflict. And when she invited me, I, I was just happy to to, to go because that's a, that's a topic that has impacted my family as well. And um, I, I really want to bring it back and hopefully, you know, go back and uh, hoping that there was going to be some normalcy, you know, but um, unfortunately that's not what we saw. And I was really looking forward to go back, but that didn't happen. I did, I've never not seen my grandmother's graveside and also my grandfather as well, who died in Western Highlands, but uh, was taken back home to his land to be buried. And I haven't seen both their gravesides. So that was really sad um, uh, and not being able to go back and see them because um, we did go to, Enga, Wabek, which is one part, of, which is the main town, and Kompiamambum, where we spent most of our time, but we didn't go to Sark Valley because fighting had escalated again when we were uh, in Wabek. And to, you, you mentioned that there's fighting going on. Did, did the ABC need to get special access into this area? How, how was this done? And was it about using your local connections there? Yeah, definitely, Evan. Um, before we even went um, to, prior to us going there, we were targeting um, Ella or Southern Islands and uh, Western Islands where this is this uh, conflict is happening and uh, this is a big issue. And I had to call uncles in Stark Valley, connections in Wabeg. And also we really had to maintain contact with local leaders and also the provincial police commander uh, was really great helping us knowing where the fighting was, what was happening um, in the districts that, that um, he, he was aware of. So it was really important for us to get those kind of knowledge, local knowledge and also up-to-date information. 
um, before we left. And uh, our safety was also, you know, key to us going there. So um, when we were speaking with the um, provincial police co- uh, commander, George Kakas, um, he was able to arrange everything. And also where we were going, Kompia Mambum, there is um, tension. Uh, and Pogora, as you know, there is also fighting going on. So um, we had to add, have that um, guarantee from the provincial police commander before we went in there and um, there was presence of the defense force and also mobile squad police um, about I would say 50 to 60 um, police officers all spread out throughout the hotspots area in the province so uh, we had security which was, which was sort of comforting and, and that assisted us in talking to people on the ground What's it like Turning up there, people knowing you from the ABC, and you're coming in with cameras and and uh, taking photos. Is was that? Did you face any uh, obstacles uh, because you're you're coming in as media? At uh, a place called Toll, and even Kompia Mambum, where um, there was a recent, I think it's less than a year now, where. Properties worth millions was burnt out, and there's a huge fight. And uh, what we got from the uh, provincial police commander was that ten over ten thousand people were displaced. Schools and you know infrastructure in the district was all in flames. In, in ashes now, actually, when we went there and um, um, going in, we didn't have that. Uh, we didn't have any sort of negative reaction, or people didn't want to talk. People really want, wanted to speak with us when we went there, and I guess it's because. Um, because of the desperate situations, some of them were in, and uh, they, they they just they just hired that, you know, this has become normal and it shouldn't be normal, and they just wanted their stories to be out there and also to know that some of them, I would say most of those we have spoken to, they really want peace, they really want um comment they really wanted you know the basic things like children going back to school the clinics and aid posts up again and just just having some normalcy is what they were really really uh wanting us wanting us to hear from them so and we spoke to you know elders of tribes who were at war with each other so that was really good and also the peace mediators and i'd like to mention also paul Kurai is a philanthropist and a, and a leader as well uh, we traveled with him and just saw how you know he was encouraging peace in the communities and uh, that was really encouraging people generally uh were happy to see us and they showed us even local showed us and shared shared stories with us that they normally wouldn't put out there for the world to see. So that was, that was, it was great to go there and see that people just wanted, wanted their normal lives back and without the need for, to, to fight or guns and, you know, yeah, so forth. So it, it, it was okay for us to go and uh, um, very learning, great learning experience for us and especially my colleague Natalie. When you, when you and Natalie and the team were there, were there signs of automatic weapons, high-powered weapons? Uh, because I understand that although tribal fighting isn't new, the, the fact that automatic weapons have come into the picture, how has that changed the scenario there? 
You are right, Evan. That has definitely changed the whole, uh, whole picture and the whole issue. Uh, really turned on its head as soon as high-powered weapons started going in. And um, I mentioned before, uh, you know, uh, traditionally people fight over land and so forth, but they used spears, bows and arrows, hacks, and traditional equipment. And then the mid-1990s, I speak for South Valley, they were started having uh, homemade guns. And you know, simple guns that they wouldn't, people wouldn't, villagers wouldn't afford. But um, sadly, more automatic guns, high-powered guns, and sophisticated weapons are being used in the fights as the years progressed. And now there are, yeah, there are guns out there, and uh, we didn't see. Obviously, they wouldn't show us. Um, and um, um, but we have heard also from the you know the authorities that there are high-powered weapons being used these days, and it's really made it so difficult. And um, uh, it's it's become normal now that high-powered weapons are used these days, and not not, not what was traditionally uh, used before. And that has made it more complex. And the, these weapons are, are around, uh, maybe not in plain sight. What are the police doing about it, or the security forces? Were you, were, was there a strong presence of police and military around the Highlands region when you were there? Yes. Uh, like I said, when we were there, we were in the presence of police because the district that we were going to visit, Kompiamambum, tensions are still, tensions are still very high. People have died in that uh, conflict about seven months ago, and we heard from Bushwili, the husband was the deputy district administrator for Kompiamambum, and he was murdered. So the tensions are really high there, and um, um, we had to go in there with police presence. We could we could never go in there without the police and the defense force, so we went there and um, the police and the def- defense force they don't actually uh, they are unable to actually make arrest and get those guns off of people because these are these are well protected by the warring tribes themselves and not it's just it's not just anybody in the tribe that. Uh, and such weapons is what we are told. Uh, there are specific, uh, I would say, hitmen or hired hands that hold those guns and those who know how to use it that hold those guns to fight. So they protect it. They protect the guns, and it's very, um, it's just very secret, secretive how they move the weapons, you know, outside of um, police knowing and the defense force knowing so it's it's really hard to trace where those guns are and find out um and the police are unable to go and get get although they do they don't get all those guns because it's it's protected in the villages and they're unable to uh, get their hands on, on those guns you're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Evan Wasuka. And on the show this morning with me is Hilda Wayne. Uh, Hilda is an ABC presenter, reporter, and she was a producer of a recent ABC trip into PNG's Highlands. Hilda, it's been a fascinating talk. Now, what, what happens in these communities when fighting takes place? What happens to life? Life as I knew it, Evan, when I was growing up, is just simple. Um, gardening, farming, just like any parent, kids going to school, parents trying to work in you know, subsistence farmers, they work the land. Hangans are really hardworking and they work the land to send the kids to school and uh, churches, 
you're just taking part in you know regular church activities, cultural and customs, and so forth. Um, but this has totally changed. This has totally changed. And we went to a, um, a place called Toll in, uh, in in also in the Ambon Valley. Uh, Toll recently we saw a massacre of 11, 11 um, uh, people. Five of them were kids and mothers. One was pregnant, and uh, it, there was a massacre there. And we went past that village and. It, it, it got a bit emotional because the village was, I saw the houses, I saw the places where there's a market and um, uh, normally mothers would be selling, you know, uh, their market, their garden food on the roadside and kids would be playing. But it was just, an, uh, it was just empty, empty and the sadness, you can see the remains of, you know, the fighting and uh, we saw freshly dug graves on the roadside and the, those graves were a few months old and people are not able to have proper burials or proper mourning because there was 11 was too many at once so it was just sad to go through all these villages and see life was not what it used to be now let me just be clear that other parts of anger there there are no fighting and it is quite normal, but where we went to, it that was the set scenarios that we were seeing as we were moving from village to village in Compia. Now, Hilda, you touched on this earlier about your own personal journey and, and the, the fact that you wanted to visit your uh, grandparents' grave. How, why wasn't that possible? Why weren't you able to do that on this time, this time around? Yeah, so um, my... Grandmother, my grandmother's gravesite. I there's a community gravesite in Sag Valley, and um, the, that gravesite when I was growing up, and we used to go and play and you know visit this gravesite. But that was decimated after the fight. And they, when I spoke to my uncles before Natalie and I went, um, my uncle said the gravesites. It's about hundreds of people who were buried there, those who were decimated and reduced to nothing because of the tribal conflict in the uh, mid-90s coming towards the late 1990s. There's no longer any gravesite there. So that was kind of uh, disheartening. And uh, I really, really wanted to take Natalie to go and see and hopefully, you know, show her where my grandmother used to rest. But that was not not there anymore. And um, when we went there, like I said, it was in, we went there thinking, Uncles were saying, it's okay, you can come over. The fighting wasn't happening between my uncle's tribes, but a neighboring tribe, neighboring two neighboring tribes. And uh, they were saying, it's, it's, it's okay now, it's peaceful. You can just come come and have a look. There was a peace ceremony that we were supposed to um, visit and speak to people Hilda, there. But then... Hilda, sorry, time's catching up on us. But we can catch up with, uh, with your journey on Sisters Let's Talk. That's available on yes. ABC Asia Pacific. Thank you for listening. This is Pacific Beat. Pacific Beat.